and welcome to the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast. And today we have a very special guest. And I know I always say that, but it's always true. But today's guest is not only special, but she's a celebrity because she is known as the TikTok interview expert. You're going to learn the new science of interviewing, whether you're asking the questions or answering them, whether you're looking for a job or needing to hire someone and you're overwhelmed with candidates. Anna's going to set you straight, set me straight. We're going to only make fantastic hires from this day forward. But it's five o'clock on a Friday almost, and we've agreed that we should be having a drink and we're not. I only have a cup of water. But anyway... Anna, welcome to the show, and I'm so glad you're here. I know you're in Philadelphia. Are you in your office in Philadelphia? I am. Hi, Laura. It's nice to be here. I'm in my home office, and this is the last thing I have to do this week in a crazy week of press for this awesome book, so I'm really excited about this. It is an awesome book, and you have such an awesome story, and Anna was not born with a silver spoon in her mouth, you know, like most of us. She uh, got her start in life kind of, I guess we could say in the restaurant industry, she ended up making her mark, even in the interview process. I know that you have developed this whole process and science of interviewing, but when you were just a young, smarty, hard worker, and you've like, I know how to fix this problem with interviewing. So tell us how that happened. Well, I was going to the University of Pennsylvania and I had moved out at a young age and I needed to pay rent and pay for my own textbooks and I was on scholarship and waiting tables was the best way to do it. And I was actually working, I live in Philadelphia, obviously University of Pennsylvania, and I was working for Stephen Starr, who's now a very famous restaurateur. But at the time, the restaurant on Penn's campus was Pod. It was his fifth restaurant. And it was so cool. It was the place to be. And I waited on so many celebrities. And it was really my first high pressure work environment. We were held to really high standards. We had to pass food tests. We had to know all the food in Japanese and English. And I I always say that, you know, some of your first jobs really make these incredible impressions on you. And I, I think I learned more in that job waiting tables And I worked there for five years, all through college and a little after. You know, I learned how to multitask. I learned how to command a room. I learned how to how to persuade people, how to sell. I learned how to read people. You know, when you walk up to a table, you have to know really quickly what they're there for. And it really helped me hone that. And meanwhile, I was going to Penn for a degree in psychology. So I was learning all of this during the day. And then at night waiting tables, I was putting it into practice. That was really where I cut myself, my my teeth on organizational development and how it all works. It was like the really pragmatic ways of doing it. The general manager at the time was just making these terrible hires. And in the restaurant world, you all have to work really well together. You know, if the hostess doesn't seat everyone appropriately, the kitchen gets jammed up and then the chef gets angry and it has to really run smoothly. And I said to him, you know, you're, you're not doing this well. We're all annoyed. We have to pick up the slack if you're hiring people that are not good at this. I was like, let, let us do it. So I created these sort of interview liaisons. And I said, we should all have a say in who gets hired. So when we go through the process, one manager, one server, one bartender, and someone from the kitchen should be able to talk to this person. And that was my first interview protocol that I created. And that was a long time ago. And I was in college. 
And I'm just doing it because I saw the need and it, I was affected by it. Right. But I think it's remarkable that you could connect the dots between questions that you ask in an interview and successful performance without any training in that or, you know, decades of experience. Because always in an interview, people bring their best selves. I mean, I think that is an early marker for your very successful career that you had this intuition, maybe like, I'm going to ask them this to see if I see X, Y, Z qualities, right? I think a lot of us have that in us. You know, if you look back into your career, it's like, oh, that's, that's where that seed was. That's why I like this. It's funny when I sat down to write my book, I titled the first chapter, An Interview Can Change Your Life. Because it wasn't until about 2019 or 2020 when I realized why I teach people how to interview. I had been on both sides of the table. I had been a director of talent acquisition. At that point, I had been a coach for 10 years, teaching these skills, training hiring managers. And I hadn't really thought too deeply about it until I reflected back on the very first interview that changed my life, which was when I was invited into the admissions interview at the University of Pennsylvania. And I told them the story about me having to you know, wait tables and that I worked at a sandwich counter in high school and I had to make ends meet. And they were impressed by my grit and my determination. And I was just telling them because I had to explain why my SAT scores weren't as good as everyone else's. And, and I wasn't doing it to pull on their heartstrings. And I really believe, I'm so passionate about the fact that an interview can truly change your life. It changed my life. Unfortunately, Job seekers aren't taught how to do this in college. Hiring managers aren't taught how to do this at work. And I saw a real need and I figured I was the right person to do it. I'm certainly passionate about it. Right. So in college, you studied psychology and then did you get a master's in, in organizational or something? Nope. Nope. Just undergrad. And then I went but, right into HR and started right. working. Right. Well, that's surprise. I think I read it in your book, a statistic about how like 90% of people in HR are not trained how to interview. And I was shocked. I was think that would be like a class interviewing 101. So we were waiting for you to provide it. <laughs> yeah, it's a dirty secret. 90% of hiring managers are never trained to interview. I was mm -hmm. the director of talent acquisition in my last corporate role. And I had never been trained to interview. And I had all the power. I hired over 80% of the people by the time I left that company. And oh, most wow. people are like that. Most mm -hmm, people right. have never been trained to interview. So I want to get into your four archetypes. I've already told you who I think our audience is. I've told her all about you guys being the super smart brainiacs in the companies, the ones that are super highly conscientious, high performers. How does it help? Like if you're interviewing, because everybody here listening has to hire people for sure. And, I, and there's also some job seekers, but they're mostly people on the hiring side. And you have these archetypes. But can a person identify the archetype of a person from a simple interview or conversation? Well, I think first and foremost, the best way to do it is to take our interview style assessment on my website, theinterviewology.com, 20 question rank order really quick, and you'll receive a 40 page customized workbook that outlines if you are a charmer, challenger, examiner, or harmonizer. 
And then from there, I think most importantly, you always have to start with yourself, right? Self-knowledge, self-awareness, self-understanding is where it all starts. So if you can really understand how you get someone to see you as qualified, what you prioritize in an interview. And then from there, if you're curious about learning about all four interview styles, you can get my book, Interviewology. And once you read through those chapters and at the end of each chapter, we unpack strengths and what I call overused strengths because I don't, I think weaknesses are just your, your strengths overused. No, I think that is a great insight for beyond interviewing. Yes, that they are, they're just overused or used in the wrong context. I think that's mm-hmm. a great insight. That's, so let me just take, tell people real quick that what she's saying is that, is you know how people are, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Or what are your opportunities? And one of Anna's points in the book is that your strength, say it's that you're really good at uh, starting conversations with people, but maybe you do that when you should be doing something else. So it's still your strength. It's just that that's not used in the right Exactly. And you can also overly rely on it, right? So let me, I'll give you a quick breakdown. So charmers want to be liked in interviews. They prioritize making a connection and they tell lots of stories. So to your point just there, charmers may forget to talk about the details, the projects that they've worked on, their qualifications, providing data, numbers, metrics. They're really more concerned about the connection. And then next we have challengers and challengers want to be respected and heard in an interview. Challengers show that they're qualified by asking tough questions. Challengers look at an interview like a cross-examination and they're going to figure something out. And then there are examiners. Examiners are more binary. They look at an interview like a test that they're either going to pass or fail. They focus a lot on the business and less on talking about anything outside of work. They are really concerned about being seen as qualified. And then lastly, we have harmonizers. And harmonizers look at an interview like a tryout for a team that they want to join. They are more collaborative. They are really less about the way the challenger wants to put a stake in the ground and say, this is what I think. And they want to be heard and they share their opinions. Harmonizers never do that. They don't want to share their opinion until they know the consensus of the group. Harmonizers are are really warm and thoughtful, and they are the polar opposite of the challenger in that way. But it seems to me that all things being equal, that a charmer has an edge in a job interview. So in our society, we conduct social interviews to our detriment. We should not be conducting so many social interviews. The type of interview you should be conducting has more to do with the type of job you're interviewing for. But especially in America, in our society, we do have a preference and a bias towards extroverts and towards people that are slightly charming. And one of the reasons I was motivated to collect this research and do this book is I've read an excellent book. I don't know if you know of it called The Irresistible Introvert. It's right on my bookshelf there. And then there was another one that came out later, How to Be Yourself by Ellen Hendrickson, which is great as well. It's about like, you know, how as introverts do you project yourself and how do you do these things in a world that prioritizes extroverts? Now, all of that being said, I assumed when I went in and did all this research that I was going to find that there was going to be one great interview style. And of course, it was going to be mine because I know how to interview. <laughs> and Obviously. Obviously. And I had been doing it for so long and I was cocky and a chip on my shoulder and I had taught thousands of people 
So I took all the data from all of my students, their interview styles, and then all the people that had received offers and internships and offers after graduation. And the most beautiful thing happened. I was dead wrong. I was completely wrong. And it was one of the best things that could have ever happened to me. And I realized that there is a normal distribution in the data. And then there's a normal distribution in our society that we don't have more charmers and charmers aren't better. They haven't cornered the market. And this was so inspiring to me that we all have an equal shot of nailing the interview. That is not what I thought. And this goes to two other pervasive myths. Number one, we all think like I did that our interview style is the best. Every one of us whether you're a charmer, challenger, examiner, or harmonizer. So our biases are born from our preferences. That was number one. And number two was this just really beautiful understanding that it's less about thinking you have all the answers and more about being more curious and open-minded and how wrong we're really getting all of this. I think it's just easier to talk to charmers because they're skilled conversationalists and then The more you talk to them, the more you like them. And then I think the challengers and examiners are just people that aren't as prepared, don't come across as friendly or nice or sometimes. Well, I'll put a real fine point on it. If all the people that I've tested, we've tested over 10,000 people, I've conducted lots of research. I myself have been in thousands of interviews. I'm just going to be very blunt about it. Charmers love interviews. Charmers relish an opportunity to talk about themselves. They enjoy the moments of an interview. Charmers look at an interview like a performance and they are the star of the show. They eat it up. Challengers and examiners don't, especially the opposite of a charmer is an examiner. When I went into this doing this research, I was like, everyone wants to be liked in an interview. That was one of my other hypotheses. And what I found is that no, actually, there are many, many people challengers and examiners that don't go in wanting to be liked. Now, everyone on some level wants to be liked. Right. But their goal is to show how competent they are. I know I was me. Yes. So if you unpack that, if charmers relish this opportunity, it's a performance. They love this. They want to be liked, which means they're going to extend that generosity and they're tell jokes and they're going to tell stories and they're going to connect. Now, Use that same logic if you're an examiner or a challenger. If your goal is to go into an interview to show that you're qualified by being the devil's advocate, by asking tough questions, by pushing the envelope a little bit, that warm and fuzzy thing doesn't happen in the same way. That's why we prefer charmers because they're easier. Yes. They're easier to interview. It's not hard on you. It's not like gotcha (laughs) journalism. They're like fun. They open up so easily. I've interviewed examiners. I'm like, tell me about yourself. They're like, well, I'm an accountant. What else do you want to know? And I'm like, ah. Those are our our audience. Right? And so like on the surface level, charmers may be quote unquote preferred, but they're really not. When you get down to it in the technical interviews and when you get further in the interview process, I could tell you hundreds of stories of examiners and challengers that blew the charmers out of the water. I think the message here is there's a time and place for challengers. I never want anyone to pretend to be something they're not and not ask those tough questions and not share their opinions. But it's about the types of questions you ask when. Build a little rapport first. Instead of asking why questions, ask how questions. 
ask questions to strike up a conversation because you're curious, not because you're accusing them of something. That's a different energy. If you shift your energy in an interview as a hiring manager or a job seeker, it changes someone's opinion of you. So we're all on some level having to balance out the thing that we're not really naturally good at. And to get great at this is to tap into those moments, to start to get conscientious, conscious of those moments when you're like, ah, you know, perhaps I overuse that strength right there. Sometimes in my mind, I, I have these archetypes and I built them because I want us to be able to go to this place where we can have more productive conversations about our preferences. Because I've been in so many debriefs with hiring managers and they just look at you and they're like, meh, I didn't like that candidate. What does that mean? And what I wanted to do is have a formalized language to talk about our interviewing experience. Your interview style doesn't change whether you're a job seeker or a hiring manager. So I wanted a hiring manager to be able to say to me, you know what, Anna, that candidate came in guns blazing, asked me a bunch of these questions and it put a bad taste in my mouth. Like we didn't build rapport first. You know me, I'm a harmonizer and that person's got to be a challenger. It doesn't mean they're not going to be great at the job, but it just struck me as odd. That's a more productive conversation. Exactly. And then, then you can look at, well, what is the role? Like, what are they being hired? What are we hiring this person for? And maybe we need some more soft skills. A lot of the bigger companies have put in these excruciating series and multi, like months of interview. Do you think that's too much? You think that's overkill? I mean, we could talk for hours about the barriers of entry that I don't think it makes the process better. Mm-hmm. I think you can overcomplicate anything, right? First of all, <laughs> yeah. I want to get rid of every applicant tracking system. They're rife with bias. Oh, Scanning resumes and deleting things if keywords aren't there and you, you can't delete out this human aspect of this process. And then don't even get me started on recorded video interviews. When you don't have enough human recruiters, they send you a link and you have to record yourself answering interview questions. I'm going to tell everyone right now, if you get one of these, no one is watching every second of it on the other end. If they don't have enough recruiters to call you on the phone and actually interview you, they don't have enough people to watch every single one of these. It's a hoop. It's an obstacle. It's a barrier to entry. None of this is making the process better. You know what makes the process better? Training hiring managers. 90% of hiring managers are never trained to interview. They shadow someone. They Google it. Maybe they're a subject matter expert. They're great at their job. They get promoted. And then someone looks at them and like, okay, you got to build a team now. And they're like, what? And like, well, you're so good at your job. Just, you know, hire people like you. And then we hire biased, lopsided organizations where we have hiring managers that have teams that are all just like them because it's easy to hire people that you like. But we know research backs us up that we aren't creative or innovative when we're in groups that are homogeneous. We need diversity in order to think creatively. If you're not training your hiring managers, it doesn't matter what you're doing for diversity, equity, inclusion on the other end. You are the gatekeeper. All right, everybody, guess what? 10,000 people in her database that she that she used for these archetypes. This is like the leader in corporate America and on TikTok and social media. You're hearing it from the A-lister. <laughs> so training hiring managers is like for you imperative to improve hiring. And I would think 
like right now would be a good time, right? Because now there's slightly more candidates for each role, but you want to get the right one. Well, actually, there's a shortage of top talent in, in the market right now. What COVID did to the real estate market, it did to the talent market. So we used to be able to post jobs and get three or 400 applications. Now, you know, you're getting, you know, 50, 80, maybe. There was a real tremendous shift in people's priorities, right? We all globally went through a near-death experience with COVID. It has us all re-examining our relationships to work, working virtual, hybrid, that's all changing, being called back into the office. So many things in this landscape of work is changing. And people right now in 2024 have a very complicated relationship with work. More so than in the last, I would say, 20 or 30 years, you know, COVID and all of this has changed our priorities. When you go through a near-death experience, you look at things and you're like, what am I doing with my life? And then, of course, we got the options to do all of this, you know, virtually and on Zoom, and that changed how we work. So with the shortage of top talent, this is the way it used to go, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Most hiring managers and directors of talent had all the power. And you could put up a post and get four or 500 applications. You didn't have to send rejection emails. No one was holding you accountable. If you said something inappropriate in an interview because you had never been trained, who's that applicant going to call? The CEO? (laughs) You're interviewing people who have no power. So it's a really messed up dynamic that needs to change. So now what's happening is... These same hiring managers are like, wait a minute, I don't know how to do this anymore because there are less candidates and they can't get away with the things that they used to get away with. So now we're stuck, which I'm so glad we are because this is the time to innovate. This is the time we have to stop and realize we have to look at the interview like an experience for a candidate. We have to give them something valuable. We have to treat them well. It is like a commercial for our businesses and our companies. If we ghost these candidates, if we treat them poorly, they're going to go out and tell people. I mean, how many people do you know had a bad interviewing experience and how many people did they tell? Oh, I hear about it all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's because these companies are operating an outdated model that they can interview people however they want, and it's not going to bite them in the butt, but it is now. So what we have to do going forward is train our hiring managers, hold them accountable, remove the barriers to entry, and look at this as a human process. And imagine just for a moment, what would happen if you were on the other side of the table? Would you want to go through 18 rounds of interviews? Would you want to have to suffer a virtual interview? Would you want to do all the things you're making a candidate do? Because you know what? In a moment's notice you could be laid off and on the other side of the table. This is a human experience. I think one reason is that lack of training and also you're trying to prove that you're the big ball, that you're competent as a boss and it just is a fail. And I know from a communication point of view, that stress is the thing that decimates the quality of your brain function. So just understanding that a candidate is by definition under stress then you want to adapt. You want to see like, who are they really, right? Not just who, if you put enough pressure on them, what did they deliver? And in the way that I was so cocky all those years ago, like I just confessed. And I write in my book that if you're (laughs) cocky and if you think that you have the right answer or the silver bullet, you're doing this wrong. And I write (laughs) that from experience because that's 
the way I used to do it, right? Like mm-hmm. I used to think my style is the best and this is how I'm, I do it. And I have to call it out. And, and it's also pervasive in the marketing of this thing. That's another reason why I wanted to write this book. No book has ever been written to both job seekers and hiring managers. No book has had a science applied to this thing that's really important. I want to elevate interviewing to be an important business decision because it's just sort of like this thing we don't talk about or train. So, you know, if you have an accounting manager, a senior engineer, and a marketing manager, is their training going to be the same in becoming better at hiring? Yes. It begins with starting with understanding your style. That's self-awareness first. That's what we start with getting everyone understanding what their interview styles are so you can understand your preferences because your biases are born from your preferences. And in an interview, no matter if you're interviewing for an accounting position, an IT position, insurance, it doesn't matter. The process and the protocol of creating structured interviews is the same. You're deriving great interview questions from the job description and competencies that are required for the position treating the interview like a test, not a conversation. This is not a date. This is an interview. Teaching hiring managers to talk less, way less. Hiring managers all talk way too much. That is the number one mistake hiring managers make. Okay. I'm sure it is not applying to the people listening, but other hiring managers talk too much. (laughs) Yeah. This is the way it goes. A candidate walks in and the hiring manager says, oh, thanks so much for coming in. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. Let me tell you about my career. Let me tell you about the department. Let me tell you about the company. Let me tell you about the project you're going to work on. Let me tell you about all this. They talk for 20 or 30 minutes. Then they look at the candidate and say, so why do you want to work here? And if the candidate has more than two brain cells, they're just going to say all the things you just told me. Exactly. Say back to them exactly. what you just said. Exactly. And that's not an interview. No, it's not. And then yeah. the hiring managers are like, I don't understand why this person didn't work out. I'm like, did you ask them questions? Did you interview them? No, you just talked at them. You monologued at them. That is really hard for charmers and challengers. Oh my goodness. I mean, I'm just going to touch on the, the hot topic that everybody talks about now. Just... Do you see HI playing a role in interviewing or or would you, what do you say about that? Are you seeing any tools that you would recommend? You know, nothing is going to replace the in-person job interview because, you know, someone asked me as I was finishing my book, they're like, oh, you're going to use AI to write your final chapter. And I was like, no, it's my story. AI doesn't know my story. In the same way, AI doesn't know your story. Sure, it can spit out some like weird AI perfect answers. But here's the thing. That's old interviewing advice. Memorize the perfect answers. Just tell them what they want to hear. You'll get your foot in the door. That does not work. So it's more about being really authentic, knowing yourself, building up your self-awareness, because it's not just about getting the jobs, but getting the right job. The right job in the right company, the right role. And that person is going to be your boss, right? You can fake anything in an interview, but then you have to work there for years afterwards. So it really hurts both people if hiring manager or job seekers are faking it. So it benefits all of us in this process to be more authentic and to be more straightforward and to be ourselves. And that's what I hope my tool in my book helps people do. Be yourself. It's not about, ooh, this person is a charmer. I need to be more charming. No, it's not about that. Right. 
Anna, this has been so uh, illuminating to learn the number one mistake that hiring managers, that it's the right now is the right time to innovate, that structured interviews are the best, that uh, social interviews are over-indexed, and that you need to know yourself. We need to get rid of all applicant tracking systems. So anybody want to uh, recommend that in tomorrow's meeting, go (laughs) right ahead. And our biases come from our preferences. Those are just some of the things that I can read. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you would like to share with our audience? Again, you're talking to highly conscientious. They're not all technical. They tend to be introverted people that always just want to do things better. I tell a lot of stories in my book. I'm thinking back to one story in particular that I told about one of my favorite examiner clients who came to me and said, I refuse to participate in the interview process because it's all a sham. And like, you know, basically <laughs> I like, it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So he's, he probably is saying what some of your listeners are thinking. Are thinking right? like, yes. And I said, that's interesting. You know, like I wouldn't have thought of it that way as a charmer. That's not the way I think about it. And the one thing that I admire so much about my opposite, and I hope that this helps people see something to admire in other people, is that examiners and challengers are so steadfast. Mm-hmm. They know who they are. They, yes. they in, a, in, a, in a very, for me, inspiring way. In the way that this candidate told me, like, I'm, I'm not doing that. And I was like, I love that because as a charmer, I'll just tell you whatever you want to hear, right? Right, right. And so I need to do more of that. And in that way, I said, well, here's the deal. You do more of what I do and I do more of what you do. And it's not a sham. It's just that we're meeting each other in the middle so we mm-hmm. can better understand each other. It's not, I'm telling you what you want to hear. It's more, we're doing this together. This is co-creative. And it's not about getting your foot in the door and it's not about telling me something that I want to hear in order to get a job or to make more money. But that's not the thing. So I think for people that are really steadfast examiners and challengers in this process, I love that. But know when it becomes an overused strength. And that's what you can get by reading Interviewology, by listening to this amazing podcast with my guest, Anna Papalia. Well, thank you so much for tuning in and sharing and being so generous and charming. You're, you do <laughs> fit the charming, charmer <laughs> profile. That's you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you're consistent. That's good. And, um, well, we really appreciate your sharing all, all the good tips. And I think also for all of us listening that it's a process, this whole interview process is something worth investing in worth spending a little bit more time and energy and learning how to do it better and now we have a way to do that so that is that's a win all right well thank you so much and everybody thank you for tuning in don't forget to leave a review and i will catch everyone on the next episode well how was that for a great conversation with anna papalia and to learn how to be better interviewing, whether you're the one asking the questions or you're the one being interviewed. Before I let you go, I want to share a very cool podcast review from this person who left like the alphabet as her 
identification. It says, Laura's podcast is full of interesting nuggets of communication wisdom, and I always hear something I can easily apply to my work. She has a relatable, easy approach. It doesn't hurt that she calls her listeners attractive either. Yes, and that's because I find intelligence and uh, highly conscientiousness extremely attractive. And this is the podcast where you learn those A-list secrets to not only help you get your point of view across, you know, to get that green light, but really it can transform your any awkwardness, any residual awkwardness you have from youth into, you know, an audacious career advantage because we are learning from the best how to be the best. And that's what we're into. So thank you so much for listening. Remember, our sponsor is Speak Up 360, the only 360 degree feedback tool designed specifically and uniquely to give you feedback on your high level communication skills. The website is www.speakupwithlauracamacho.com. Have a super duper day and we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you so much for being here. It really warms my heart. Have a good day. Bye-bye.